Time to do another show. Hi, everyone. It's Jungle Jim Jerome with another episode of Inside Curling. There's lots going on in the curling world. We've got a packed show, Kevin. Are you ready to take us inside, Kevin? <laughs> inside the Orleans Arena. So much stuff coming up. Stick around. we got a lot to talk about. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, we want to uh, welcome everyone to the program and thank all of our sponsors. Uh, we appreciate them and we appreciate you supporting them. Sports Interaction brings you what's happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost is the sponsor of Mailbag, our email segment. Coyote Tractor brings you Hot Rock Topics. Those are always lively. And Storytime, Warren, you're going to give us that today. And Meridian brings you our guest each and every week, and we've got one coming up. The Men's Worlds, as you know, is happening in Vegas. We're about halfway through. Kevin, you're there. Uh, you're going to bring us up to speed on that. More team breakups. I thought it was over when a hundred of them broke up a couple weeks ago. Uh, but there's more news there, Ward. The Canadian Juniors is in the books. Uh, we got our future stars. Uh, let's find out about that. Hot Rock Topics. There's been a lot of attention paid to the draw shot challenge or the draw shot distance. Canada's struggled with this. Uh, we want to look into that further. We've got emails coming up like we do each and every week. We'll get to that. And in the house... John Kellerin, who's going to come on, Warren. This guy's an unbelievable guy who's everything curling in Las Vegas, and we look forward to talking to him. And Warren, you're going to take us through the history of the men's worlds. It's the 63rd birthday of them. And explain to us why Canada hosts either the men's or worlds every year. Also, if we read your email, you're going to get a copy of Warren's book. Uh, if you want to email us, do it at insidecurling at gmail.com. All right, let's get rolling. What's happening around the curling world is brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. You got to be 19 to play, and we want you to play responsibly. Kev, over to you. Vegas. It was Canada's fourth game. They made some mistakes, Kev, that could have cost them the game, but so much going on there. Kevin, bring us up to speed. Yeah, well, it has been an incredible event so far, and yeah, Team, team Gooshu, Team Canada, they keep winning, but it's not because it's super pretty, but they're doing fine. But the teams that are doing well, Team Canada, of course, Team Dropkin USA, Team USA looks really good, and you know who else looks really good? Team Finland, Kiskinen, they have been curling so well, actually lost a game to Italy, but Italy had, had to make an incredible freeze late in the game. They're huge sweepers, carried a rock, just carried it, which I thought half down the sheet was lost. It would have been a draw for five. They would have won another game. They would be undefeated, but Team Italy made a great freeze, ended up winning that game, but Kiskinen is doing fantastic. Italy looking great, beating uh, Team Sweden. Sweden losing two games in one day unheard of but you can imagine Nicodine two up with hammer playing nine has a short little six foot raise to end the game misses it just barely so he comes home one up with hammer it's over Nick never loses that way he has an easy pocket double which he just doesn't miss flashed it flashed completely gave up a steal of two to lose the game and then he's two up going home against Italy later in the day and Italy makes a beautiful double for four so Sweden loses two games in one day. So they're down near the bottom of the pack at one win and two losses. Incredible, uh, the drama going on here. There's a ton of movement in the ice. Tons. It's running a pretty good speed, though, around 14 and a half. Does go a little flat late in the game. You can throw around a 13, 8 to 14 in the 10th end, and it'll come down enough. But early in the game, yeah, 14 and a half, even 14, 8. So really quite good, but just a ton of curl early in the week. But it's starting to settle down now. The They were taking edge of 12 to get button. Now it's more like four or five inches outside edge of eight. 
And then in a couple more days, it'll get uh, more and more predictable. But that's just the way arena curling is. And uh, it's sure been fun, Jim, so far. Can't say enough about uh, being in the building where... I was going to say you hang your coat up. You don't have a coat in Vegas. <laughs> it's, it's 28 <laughs> degrees outside. You hang up your wallet, Kev. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah, that's well. Yeah, there's a little. There's a little of that going on. But but yes, it's uh, it's phenomenal. Between games, you know, there's not a lot of time when we're doing the broadcast between games. But you have a quick bite to eat, and then I just go for a walk. It's so gorgeous out. Just go for a nice stroll, and then back into the rink again. I think that's why curling and and hockey and ice sports are 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 really gaining popularity in in Vegas is because it's hot outside and it's really quite nice to go into into the building. It's it's not cold, but it's in U.S. terms seventy degrees, twenty degrees for in Celsius inside the building. So it's it's comfortable, but it's not thirty degrees. So it's really a joy. Mm-hmm. It's so different. It's just a different experience. Both are good. It's just different. Kevin, explain to us. You know, you you talk about ice conditions changing as the event goes on. Why do they change and how do they change and, and, and what's the reason for it that the ice does change? So when it comes to arena events, before the event starts, the rocks are papered. They're textured. They use, do actually use sandpaper on the bottom of them mm-hmm. uh, through a jig. And they're, they're done that way to get lots of curl to start the event. Basically, they scratch them. Now, of course, like anything else, when it's a little bit rough to start with, as the rocks go down the sheet again and again and again and again, that roughness wears off and the rocks get smoother and the ice because of that will get keener and straighter it's kind of just less friction it's pretty obvious so they they make sure to start with there's lots of curl and that way halfway through the week there's still enough curl some events even jim texture midweek so that when you get to the final weekend there's still lots of curl because these events are so long there's so many days and so many draws and there are 10 end games and there's lots of practice and, and therefore the rocks go straighter. One other thing that people are going to notice, and, and we've mentioned it a couple of times on the broadcast we're doing, especially Mike Harris and I are doing a lot of games together, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. So at the fifth end break, the ice makers come out and they mop the ice with uh, string mops and just gets rid of the frost and, and any debris that may or may not be on the ice mm-hmm. just to clean it up. The experienced teams know that, but a lot of the inexperienced teams that come to the Worlds maybe for the first time you're going to notice that they go to throw the center guard, it's into the house or maybe even back of the house. Right. What happened? Well, it's just keener in the sixth end to start with. Arena events are different than curling club events. The ice is just a little bit different. Yeah, you saw a guy, uh, the skip or the third from Norway last night, blast one, just like you said, to the the back of the house and was trying to throw up a guard. I'm glad Kevin mentioned the the ice conditions because we're hearing a lot of <laughs> muttering about it. And I, I don't like him, it's it's... Early in the game, I mean, I checked some of the percentages. Even though it looked like Gushu struggled last night, he played 85%. They were 87 as a team. Germany yesterday had an average game of 88%. So the percentages which suggest you by some of the teams that the conditions are certainly uh, playable and there's no big issues, I don't think, either. Adin will be the guy to watch here because he's won, I don't know, how many worlds? Four? Five? Five. Five. Five, yeah, five world championships. Yeah. Amazing. So we'll see what happens there. Kev, uh, let's get to the breakup of teams. Another, another day. The McEwen Carruthers team is, is, I guess, not working out. They were so good, but they haven't really performed. They've fallen short of their expectations. Brad Jacobs, who we thought was going to take a year off, now he's talking about looking for a team. What's going on, Kev, here? Well, the Brad Jacobs one, magically, that came out on April 1st. Okay. I'm questioning that one. Me too. April 1st is uh, April Fool's Day. So, you know, if Brad's coming back... That's awesome. But it was April 1st, so I'm not holding my breath on that one. When we're talking about uh, McEwen Carruthers, that's the biggest story. You know, it looks like Gunner's team, Gunlickson, that's going to split up. Uh, Chelsea Carey, lots of different teams. But the, the, the one of note to me is the McEwen Carruthers, two of the best curlers in our sport get together. And with Sam Magalski, a fantastic second. Derek's great. And Colin Hodgson. Hodgie, one of the best leads in the game. So how could they not win? But they just didn't. Year after year, just not winning what everybody thought they should. And you know what? That happens sometimes. And when that happens, change the team. Just something in the chemistry. Now, Mike and Reed are are best of friends. I don't know the answers to why they weren't winning, but two of the best curlers in the world, if they're not winning, get your own teams together and start winning again. It's way more fun if you win. Right. This would be way inside if you knew this. Do Do you think it's the skip saying, I want out, or is it the third saying, I want out? 
after the last few years that they've had, it's all four of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> like they, they've all wanted, they've all been winning at curling forever. And you just would have thought that it would be automatic that they would continue to win and they just haven't. And I don't know why. So get on different teams and, and, and do some winning because they're all good enough to win. It's just together as a foursome, they just didn't win for some weird reason. Yeah. Stuff happens. Uh, Warren, the, the Canadian juniors is in the books, uh, from last week, uh, what do you like? Well, a couple of comments. First, let's look at what happened on the ice. On the women's side, outstanding performance by Nova Scotia's Taylor Stevens. She went undefeated, a perfect 11-0 record. Defeated Emily Deshane from Otto in the final. Playing with Taylor was third, Lauren Ferguson, second, Allison Umla, and lead, Kate Fitzgerald. A name familiar to both Kevin and I, Mary Matatel, is, uh, is the coach of that team. On the men's side... Host team Ontario is London Rooney from Whitbury. Defeated Alberta's Johnson Teo in the final. Claimed the Canadian title. He ended up with a 10-1 record. With Rooney were third Nathan Steele, second Jacob Jones, and lead Austin Snyder. So what happens from here? This is the first time since 1994 that the Canadian junior winners of this year will not go to the world championship until next year. So we'll have to see how that all works out. I think a comment I do want to make on the television side of thing that's, again, in my opinion, not a positive. Since the early 80s, the finals of the Canadian junior men's and women's were televised live on a national network. But that did not happen this year. There was no live television coverage from the juniors. Rather, there was video streaming done by Curling Canada, which was great. But I think uh, you look down at the final day, which was last Friday, uh, the first, they played on one draw on Friday afternoon, the men's final, the women's final, and two bronze medal games. The only game that was even streamed was the men's final. And I would have thought they would have at least split it so the women's final could have been streamed as well. But when I look at the numbers, on the YouTube channel suggested that game had 12,000 views. And I compare that to Curling Canada's numbers from 2020 in their annual report where they suggested the Canadian Junior Championships had a reach of 1.3 million. And in my opinion, the best way to encourage youngsters to play in a sport is for them to see other people their age playing it. And the way to do that is still through television. Video streaming might be the future, but we aren't there yet. So I don't think this was a, a good move. What are your thoughts on that, Kevin? Getting the kids on television, getting their their families the ability to all watch and, and just promote junior curling to, to the general public. Streaming, you're going to get the true blue curling fan. You are. And then people are going to do whatever it takes to, to get to watch the curling. But we're not getting the the outside kids watching. I agree with you, Warren. It's not it wasn't a positive in my in in my mind. Kev, are we getting old enough? Uh, you know, every time we hear something junior I'm looking up these days because I'm getting old going, oh, God, that's uh, what's his name's kids. Do you think we're getting old <laughs> enough where it's going to be? I know Hanson will be the case. We're going, oh, my God, that's what's his name's grandkid. <laughs> there you go. That's just what I was going to say. Grandkids, Jim. <laughs> grandkids, yes. Isn't that something when you look around all sports? doesn't matter if you're looking at the NHL or you're looking at MLB or you're looking at curling. And so many of the top athletes are somebody's kid, somebody's grandkid. And I guess it just comes because you you grow up with a certain sport and it's just in your DNA, sitting around the table. You learn about how to forecheck or you learn about how to draw or you learn about how to throw that curveball. You're talking about it all the time and the kids just suck all that information in as a, at a young age and they just get good at it. But you're right, Jim. Yeah, that's a really good observation that so many of the kids and grandkids of the previous uh, stars of our sports end up carrying on with those sports because of the family influence. Still like being punched in the diaphragm. Oh, that, well, that's what's his name's kid. Oh my God, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's what's happening around the curling world. Uh, thanks a lot to Sports Interaction for that. And of course, each and every show we do Hot Rock Topics. Thank you to Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs. If it is Brad Jacobs, April Fool's. And also Coyote is involved in the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. Lots of stuff going on here, Warren. We talked about the draw shot challenge, the draw shot distance. Uh, Canada has struggled with this. It's become really important as to who decides to get last rock in the first end. Uh, we're hearing different things about all this. This hasn't always been the way the last stone is determined, but it's varied a, a couple of different times, Warren. So it's, it's kind of confusing. Bring us up to speed on all of that, Warren. Well, first of all, again, this week, Brad Gushu seems to be having difficulty with the draw shot challenge. So... 
I think it's maybe something to look at. It's becoming extremely important because at the end of an event, it's now determining who could possibly be in or out of the competition. In addition to throwing the first rock or the first end, I mean, originally you flipped the coin and uh, back in my day, that was totally how it was done. And uh, if you were on a bad run, you could end up uh, losing last rock in the first end four or five games in a row, or it could be the other way around. Uh, I was involved in the process in the 80s when it was finally determined that there was a lot of unbalance. So maybe in the round robin of the briar, you throw red rocks and you throw yellow rocks exactly the same amount of time. So when you threw red rocks, you were automatically assigned last rock. And in the playoffs, uh, when you're playing someone, your record against them in the round robin determined who was going to have the last stone. So that seemed to work for a while, more or less. But then people start to think, well, that's not really fair. Maybe somebody through some kind of skill thing could have last rock more than half the time. So that's when the whole idea of the draw shot challenge began to come into the fray. The way it's being done today, it's basically each team throws a rock to the to the button. It's two per team, and they take the average and the one that's that's the best of the two. Nobody ever sees this. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this if this is going to be as important as it is, maybe it should become part of the game itself. For sure, the game's going to have to be eight ends, but maybe it's the first thing that happens before the game gets underway. And maybe it isn't two rocks per team. Maybe it's one rock per team. Maybe the team can decide who they want to throw that rock. It's totally their decision because, again, it is a team. Two people sweep, one purple throws, one person holds the broom. And maybe what you do is have each team just throw one rock, and you can determine by flip of a coin or whatever who's going to have in-turn or out-turn choice. And maybe this is done right at the start of the game. So it's going to be a little more by chance that is now where they practice, practice, practice this, and then throw it. But maybe a little variation to this degree that makes it a little more challenging and possibly that the crowd and the television audience also sees what's going on with this whole thing because it's so important. Well, it certainly has become extremely important, and we do need to have the draw to the button uh, on television. There's no question about that. And then also the the total distance to the, to that particular draw and making sure everybody knows no different than the standings of, of win-loss, but the standings of draw distance is that important now. So, Jimmy, you mentioned that that Canada just isn't real strong at the at the draw of the button, and I don't know why, but it's concerning. It's probably something to do with how we practice, I suppose. But right now, after four draws, that's when we're taping the show. Canada sitting at four and zero on the win loss, but right now sitting in tenth place out of thirteen on the draw to the button distance. So that really kind of tells the tale because it was the same at the Olympics. And at the women's world. So I, I, not necessarily in 10th, but just not at the top. So I just don't know what's going on, but that's something that Curling Canada and the teams and the players, the whole group need to get together and have a meeting and go, what's going on? You know, we got great curlers, but why are we having trouble with the draw to the button contest? Because that knocked, uh, that knocked Jennifer Jones out of the Olympic games. How did you do in the draw, draw shot challenge, Kev, when you played? Or was it done that way? No, 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 Jim. It was not done this way uh, back in the day. Warren, I think it was the 2009 Briar in Calgary. Yeah. I remember this one really good. The rules were we'd throw one draw and there could be the same player drawing every game. So when I used to practice, Jules and I, we'd throw through the rocks. I'd slide through the rocks, throwing draws to the button, and I'd sweep them. So I'd throw them, get up, sweep to the button. Do it again on both turns, making sure it was nice and straight, A to B, all these types of uh, all these types of things. So I threw thousands and thousands of draws to the button with sweeping. So I was very comfortable doing that. And anyway, in the Briar and Calgary, the way it worked was that if you were ahead on the distance drawing before the game and both teams covered the pinhole, the team that was ahead before the game got the hammer. Okay, Jimmy? Got it. So what happened was we covered first three, four, five games. So we had a total distance of zero, and everybody else had a, a number of some sort. So every time we, <laughs> you play, you cover. <laughs> well, automatically, we'd get the hammer. And we ended up with hammer in every single game for the entire briar. And it might have even been two briars in a row in 08 and 09, but for sure in 09. I guess, you know, I can't remember in 08 if it was the same rule, but then that's when they took out, of, they got rid of that, and they started to make sure that all the different curlers on the team had to draw the button. 
There's no more one person got to throw. <laughs> right. How to make friends, Kev. You must have been very popular getting 13 in a row. <laughs> oh, I remember Jeff, Jeff Stout, and he was so mad. It wasn't mad at me because I didn't make the rules, but we played each other, and he played really well in that, Briar. We ended up playing him in the final, actually, when he had Kevin Park playing with him, an old teammate of mine. But anyways. Sure, I remember Kevin. Yeah, And I remember him being so mad when uh, we threw first and covered. Well, it was over. Like he, it didn't matter if he covered right. or not. And he's going, "Well, this is stupid." <laughs> and he was right. Maybe you had it were in his head so bad. He, that's where he started that three sixty turn coming out of the hack. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to uh, Coyote Tractor uh, for sponsoring Hot Rock Topics. Mailbag brought to you by Nestle Boost. Thanks very much to them. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Mitch Liddell uh, writes us the following email at Warren about shooting percentages. Uh, we talked about this in our last podcast. Hey, guys, just after listening to the previous episode and the discussion on making statistics more representative of the full team and determining the effect of sweeping on the percentage, I had a thought on a big improvement in curling stats could be found if we were to measure digitally the speed and trajectory of a rock at the point of release. Not sure what that means, Warren. You're going to have to explain it. This would allow us to see if a curler is consistently releasing the rock heavy or light compared to the call and whether the curler is aiming correctly at the broom or if they missed it. Then, if a shot is the wrong weight or trajectory but still is made, that could be due to the sweepers. We'd be able to really see which set of sweepers are having the biggest impact and which curlers are the most consistent analytically. I don't think it would be too tough to get that technology working. Similar to how baseball now has launch angle and speed for every hit ball available. Let me know what you think. Well, it's an interesting idea. Certainly anything is possible if you have the money to develop it, I guess, without question. The one variable that Mitch hasn't mentioned that comes into this whole story, and that's the matter of how the rock is released. Uh, so that's another variable that certainly would have a major impact. But I think it's an interesting concept. And I think the more things that we can bring into this sport that give people more data, more statistics on what's happening with things, I think the better. Compared to other sports, we do not have much. But uh, this is an interesting proposal. Maybe it could be developed. Maybe Mitch is the guy who can tell us how can this be done economically. What do you think, Kevin? Well, it sounds like Mitch is really, really smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got a PhD, I think. <laughs> who isn't smarter than us? Yeah. But I do like this idea because I talk about tangents all the time on air broadcast and, and just actually talking to people that were teaching and trying to explain the idea of having going in an exact straight line to the broom and not sliding a little bit wide, which is really common. And then you end up squaring your shoulders down the ice and that internal really, really curl. And so that is something to Mitch's point that you could easily see on analytics. If it was sort of like what we see at golf or like we see at baseball. And that would be really cool to see somebody sliding like a Bruce Mowat, say dead straight or even slightly inside. And in putting that rock back in a positive manner to the broom, you're going to see that rock analytically go straight or skid a little bit back. And then Bobby Lammy or or, uh, or Hammy hits it and can get it to curl. But you're going to see all of that with the impact of the sweeping. So Mitch is bang on here with, with what's available, what's possible, with being able to see the, the speed and trajectory of the actual throw. And to your point, Warren, if it's a soft release, you're going to see that clear as a bell analytically it's going to start to move much earlier than say bruce mowitz is going to move so really really great conversation to have the technology obviously isn't here yet in curling but what a great thing it would be on a broadcast they were amazed kevin last night nichols went to deliver a rock and it jerked and uh, you know apparently hit a scratch mark or something and then he added a bunch of rotation and still pulled the shot off. Yeah, a little bit of debris, but uh, a very experienced guy to be able to shake the debris off and still make the shot. That was an amazing outturn tap around the corner guard you're talking about. Uh, okay, thanks a lot for your emails. Uh, if you do get your email read right on the show, Warren, you are an author. you got a lot of hats, man. Uh, and you've written a book called Sticks and Stones, which is the story of how curling became an Olympic sport. And you're going to win a copy of that book uh, if we read your email. Thanks very much to Nestle Boost bringing you our mailbag segment. Okay, it's that time in the program, fellas. 
So that's our guest knocking at the door. Before we bring him in, we said at the top of the show, uh, we're going to talk to John Caloran, or Caloran, if you're Scottish, or Caloran, if it's Irish. John is the CEO of the Reno Tahoe Winter Games Coalition. We want to find out what that's all about. Everyone's getting used to events now in Vegas. And uh, how is all this happening, Warren? Uh, John is the guy behind all this, and you know him better than anyone. I certainly do. And this all goes back to 2012, I believe, when then-CEO of the U.S. Curling Association, Rick, Rick Patsky, and I began to discuss the idea of possibly putting an event into Las Vegas. We didn't even know which event it was going to be. But discussions started, and then we started to hone in on the Continental Cup. And uh, I actually made a trip to Vegas, I think, in June of 2012. And John and his group from Tahoe, Reno Tahoe Winter Games Coalition, was there, along with Ann Cribbs, who was another person involved in the same type of business from San Francisco. And we started to talk about the possibility of putting a curling event into Las Vegas. And uh, John became the uh, the key person behind uh, the whole operation from that end. Although he's in Reno, that's where they operate out of, he has become the, the mainstay of everything we've done in Vegas since uh, the first event happened there in 2014. So that's how we became associated quite a while ago. Yeah, time for a guest brought to you by Goldline Curling. In the house is the name of the segment. Goldline Curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found also at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. Also, if you love curling, Goldline Curling is growing and looking to hire for next season. I may apply for this, Warren, okay, and leave you guys high and dry. I hope so. <laughs> okay, Martin, I may do this, all right? Positions are available in retail, warehousing, and customer service please contact them at jobs at goldlinecurling.ca. Okay, Warren, well done. Let's bring John in. Come on in, John. How are you, man? John Killerin. I am so good, and it's a pleasure to be in the house with you and Warren and, and, and sponsored by Goldline. It doesn't get much better than that. So, John, this title uh, that you have, um, CEO of Reno Tahoe Winter Games Coalition, I'm to understand that, that amongst all the other things that you've done for curling in Vegas, that you guys are trying to get the Olympics there? Yeah. It's, so the 1960 Winter Games were in Squaw Valley, one of the great iconic resorts in the Reno Lake Tahoe region. Reno Lake Tahoe has more concentrated ski resorts than any place else in the country. For Reno Tahoe, it's been about a 40-year ongoing legacy because you know, Olympic bids don't just happen overnight. It's been ongoing uh, for these decades through different people. And since 2008, I've been the front of that effort. You know, we keep those things going and try to keep motivated. But at the same time, we thought, well, we're meeting all these people. Let's start putting on events. And so that's what we started doing. And especially uh, we've done some cross-country junior national cross-country running races up where I live in Reno and Lake Tahoe area. And then, as Warren said earlier, when uh, we got engaged there in the summer of 2012 and got the right people in place down here in the Orleans Arena has been from day one just a most incredible property and partner. Uh, as I've always said to people, the property down here, I hope if I do other events elsewhere that we'll get as good as the Orleans, but we won't get better. And that's always been the case. So everything's just really kind of fallen into place with all of that. And so we still look at the Olympic effort, but really now we're most engaged really kind of as a sports management company here in Nevada. And because, look, you guys live in places where there's rivalry among cities. So I live in Reno. Las Vegas is in South. We're in the North. There's always a rivalry. So as we are Reno Tahoe Winter Games, when we're down here, you know, sometimes the eyebrows raise when they hear Reno Tahoe. What are you doing here? <laughs> so we now do business down here as Sports Nevada USA, a much more benign, state-friendly and embracing of every part of the state uh, name when we're down here. <laughs> Tell me this, John. Uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago that people would have said, are you kidding me? Curling in Vegas? That is never going to happen. Walk us through uh, the, the first time you decided to do this and, and the day that you got your first event. You must, you must have been over the moon when it finally happened. Are you kidding? That was us when we were first approached. And like, not only was Rick and Warren and their thing, but it was also my chairman of my board to this day is Brian Krolicki, who at that time was the lieutenant governor, the second highest office in the state of Nevada. Kate Katniss was early in her first term as WCF president. And Rick got Brian to come over to the first ever Youth Olympic Winter Games Innsbruck, Austria, back in 2012, and start having our, uh, that conversation with them. And it really blossomed from there because the 2014 Continental Cup was the last time the WCF was financially involved as a partner in that event. And so we had that great first event because all these people kind of came together. But 
the average stay for a visitor to Las Vegas is two and a half days. I mean, because you, you know, how many hangovers can you get, right? right. So, <laughs> so the average stay is about two and a half days. So the convention, everybody's like, come on, they're going to come for five days and four days of curling. Really? And I was signing a contract with the hotel for 200 rooms per night and saying, please don't hold me to attrition if we don't sell all these rooms. Well, long story short, we opened up sales a year and ahead of stance, and people were like, "What do you think you are, the Rolling Stones?" And I'm like, "No, we're the Sliding Stones." Oh, very good. You know, so so we opened up a year ahead in advance. We had upped the room. I thought the hotel manager, when a great guy, Rod Paulson, who at that time worked directly for Curling Canada, and now he's our ticket marketing guy based out of Winnipeg, told the hotel manager, "I said, I think you need to put 500 rooms aside per night." And I thought the guy was going to fall out of his seat. Well, we did. And on that year ahead of time, the first weekend they went on sale, they sold out in 48 hours. So now they're scrambling to find us more rooms and more rooms. And from a group that was all like, what's curling in Vegas? Or do we know what we're doing? It went to as soon as we were done with the 14 event, the Orleans came back and said, when can you come back? And we've been coming back now ever since. Cool. Yeah, we know Rod. Obviously wears many hats for sure. So well done, John. Warren? Right. So, John, thanks for, for joining us today. But let's get uh, down to the current event. And, of course, as you mentioned, it's the sixth time a major event's been held in Vegas. And all the previous ones, we've attracted between four and 5,000 people for the uh, entire time of the event. Interesting enough, about 90% plus of them probably have come from Canada. But this event with the pandemic has presented you with uh, a lot of really special challenges and some difficulties so let me ask you, how are things going and what were some of the challenges you faced in uh, making this all happen in 2022? Well, first and foremost, as both of you know, there's usually a bid process that you usually get awarded a world championship a couple of years in advance. That certainly was the case for us with the 2018 world men's that we had here. Late last summer, Colin Gramslaw, the secretary general of the World Curling Federation, emailed me and said, hey, we still are trying to find a place to try to safely hold the, the world men's as safely as possible, would, would you and New Orleans be involved in it? And so we basically have had about five to five and a half months of prep time for what normally takes two years. And to do it while supply chains are troubled worldwide, we in the WCF uh, have been scrambling to get things in here. If we had a two-hour show here, I could tell you about the saga of the royal blue carpet, the odyssey to get it here. First off, the odyssey to source it, the odyssey to get it here, and how it almost didn't get here but we don't have that kind of time. So there were a lot of logistical things that we had to be, deal with and worry about. Uh, as you guys know, we love giving listening devices to the fans in the stands so they can listen to the broadcast. Those could, we just couldn't get them in time for the supply chain uh, problems coming from overseas. So a lot of things are a little different this time around. The pandemic, we're also not doing a lot of the ceremonies and pregame marches, pre-draw marches that we do with the teams and the ring ceremonies, the competitor pins. So there's a lot we've had to scale back. But at the same time, the people that are here, we're having a blast. And yes, there are less people. The pandemic has taken its toll on travel. And then what the pandemic hasn't taken, the high fuel prices now for people. And we have a lot of people really want to come here at the last minute. And I think they're being maybe dissuaded that uh, the plane tickets from wherever they might want to come from are kind of astronomical right now. So it's been a little bit of everything that's kind of uh, put this back down. The crowds will grow. We know with our advanced ticket sales, the crowds will grow as we go later into the week. But uh, all of those factors have come into play. But so far, we have 13 teams competing. We want to keep it that way. We, the only way we want teams to stop playing is if they don't make the playoffs after the round robin. And the people that are here are having a great time, and we're doing everything we can. The players are being quarantined uh, on a single floor at the hotel, along with only people from our event that are, uh, you know, because we're not in a full bubble, but we're doing everything we can to keep them as safe and healthy to compete. Because at this point, that's, that's the job number one of us to get these guys through this week safe and healthy and competing to the best of their ability. Great. Glad to hear that. So let's just have another little diversion here before I throw in over to Kevin. So before this all happened in 2014, curling in Las Vegas would be related to something to do with your hair. So how have these events impacted uh, Vegas overall as far as the sport of curling is concerned? And certainly with the Orleans and what it's done for them, how it's impacted other events uh, that maybe aren't uh, quite as popular going into Vegas? Well, you know, certainly the Orleans has been a very receptive partner to bringing curling events in here on a fairly regular basis. You know, example, six and nine years. Uh, they've also actually been very uh, helpful to, uh, you know, Team Schuster, the gold medalist from 2018, since about 2017, I think it is, or right around there. They've been a, a sponsor partner of the team so that when they're competing in national events, and whatnot, you see the Orleans emblazoned all over their jerseys. The Young Bucks qualified for this. They had one sponsor spot left on their, their jersey for this event, 
And with Team Schuster's, uh, you know, uh, blessing as, as the team the Orleans usually sponsors, the Orleans picked up that sponsorship to help out uh, the Young Bucks Team USA a little bit. So they're very willing to jump into those kind of things. And they're very willing to look at, at things beyond the elite competition here. And we've had discussions over the course of years about how we might be able to help with the recreational curling in here because there's a great local group, Curl Vegas, uh, headed by a great group, our main contact there over Brad Whitlock, who's helped build the ice uh, sheets here with the ice crew that comes in and does a great job. Each event we have here, he lives locally. And they're, you know, right now they curl on, uh, you know, uh, hockey rink ice, like is common here in the United States. And we're trying to help them all we can to, uh, to, to get a, at least a two to four sheet thing going in an industrial place somewhere to, to get them dedicated ice. Because as we all know, there's so much more to curling on dedicated curling ice than to curling on a hockey rink. So uh, we, uh, you know, we work with them. The Orleans uh, is aware of them. We've had them introduced back and forth. So compound on top of that, the big, big popularity, the Vegas Golden Knights and what they've done. Ice sports is now a major part of the culture here. Uh, more recreational skating facilities going up as we speak. Now a minor league team for the, uh, the Golden Knights, the Silver Knights play in town. So ice sports in general are exploding here, and curling is a part of that. Well, yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, John. And uh, you know, <laughs> this is a gr- it's so perfect around here for curling for people that haven't been to to Orleans and to the arena, being able to get up, walk, walk through the casino, grab food if you want, go watch a curling game, and there's not much time between games. So it's easy to pop back into the casino, have a drink or two, or have some D, go back to the next game. For anybody that hasn't been to a curling event here, they really should take the time to do it. It's it's awesome. But I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, a curling facility in Vegas. It just seems to me, and this is where you could help, you know, we've talked about it for quite a few years, if it's talk over a beer, and, and the idea of, of a dedicated club in a place where there's all these conventions and so many people wanting to try the game in the U.S. and around the world, I just can see it being just an absolute racetrack from various casinos to the rink for all these tens of thousands of people to try our wonderful sport. I guess I'd just like to ask you your thoughts on that because I just see the growth potential of curling in Vegas as being astronomical. I'm not sure four sheets is enough. Yeah, I know. It's it's almost like a four sheets. Uh, Kevin would be the appetizer before that wonderful steak coming at your steakhouse dinner somewhere here in Vegas, right? It, you know, it's. I think it would be a start for the curling club. They've raised about half the money that they need to get that done. And so they're looking, uh, there's some grant programs with, I think, the WCF. They're going to look into try to at least accomplish that because I also think that that then becomes something, and Brad and I have talked to Brad Whitlock, that something like that then becomes, hey, if that's doing well, then certainly that's going to show that there's an appetite and something more so. That said, we were having plenty of discussions about something larger than that here. You know, Warren and I have had those discussions. I know you guys speak, and, and it was our intention when we were all going to be down there. And unfortunately, two-thirds of us are here in Las Vegas, and, and Warren's uh, back up in the home office. But, you know, I, I think those discussions are going to be ongoing again. I think the pandemic cut that down, and with the price of construction and construction materials going up and people trying to just make their businesses get through the pandemic and the economic turmoil that it created. I think it it derailed the conversations a little bit, but it certainly has not killed them. You know, when it comes to this building, I just want to get everybody clear as to what everybody's thinking about, or at least what I've been thinking about in terms of Vegas. Because, you know, John, all the curling fans, you know, tune into Inside Curling going, this is crazy. Curling will never work in Vegas. I want to ask you, is there an option for the people who come to Vegas to choose certain things they want to do, go to a show, go to the ice rinks, you can go to the curling club, you could go to the golf course, hit some balls. Is that something that is an option to decide what they want to do while the convention's on? Because, of course, the conventions don't go 24-7, but Vegas sure does. Yeah, you know, when it comes to those things, the the helicopters, we had partnerships with them. We had partnership with the uh, Jeeps that uh, take you out to Red Rock Canyon. We had partnerships with golf clubs. All those kind of things that you do. So we do that, but we're a pretty aggressive local organizing committee. Others do it too. And then the convention authority has a website that you can look at things to do while you're going to be in the dates. They have a calendar to the dates that you're doing. And they have been a sponsor partner of ours for the entirety of of, uh, all of our events here. And certainly it's something we talked about when we were talking about a curling facility here that they definitely were the ones that brought up the conventions and how they would help us uh, reach out to any convention that's coming in to make sure that a curling experience was part of the things that they could endeavor to enjoy while they would be here. Well, yeah, and I'm just thinking about it just as if I'm in the club. 
standing there, there'd be thousands of people coming through that want to try it. Right now in the U.S., it's, it's such a young person game and so many new people coming into the sport. And it would be a, a very unusual curling club. You might have a couple of leagues, but mostly it would just be people coming in, playing it one, two, three times while they're here for a year, like you say, two nights or three nights that the people are here. And they go away and they'll, you know a lot of them will just enter their clubs wherever they come from because they'll love it. And it just would expose so many people to our wonderful sport that otherwise wouldn't have got exposed to it. And I just see that something like that in Vegas would just help curling overall just so much. And it's, it, it excites me big time, as you can tell, because I just I can see it clear as a bell that uh, that it would work wonderfully, John. Well, Kevin, we couldn't agree with you more. You know, the 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 thought of something like that helping because that's been part of our attitude over the years is uh We've, as Warren can tell you, from even our events down here, we wanted our events to help grow the sport in the United States. And certainly the the Schuster victory and the gold medal victory in 2018 accelerated that a little bit more. And you're right. It's a much younger demographic in the United States that's going out because it's a different sport. It's not the sport that their parents took them to. And millennials especially seem to like finding their own experience. And I think that's the age group you're looking at right now. And they're excited to have an experience. They're doing it in their local communities where possible. But this could definitely be a big linchpin. And, and like we said, it's something we felt to do. We felt it's part of our uh, responsibility here, not only to have great events in Las Vegas, but help to grow this sport throughout the country. Yeah, great. Go ahead, Warren. We're getting close to the end of this event. Maybe some people after hearing this today might like to go to Vegas and New Orleans for the final weekend. Where should they get the information? LasVegasCurling.rocks, R-O-C-K-S, is the main website to go to for information. And Warren, you think we're almost done with this event. We're not. <laughs> we're, we're just in day three. <laughs> say, you know, hey, Kevin, that's easy to, for the guy to say who's sitting at home in his home office while you're on the broadcast booth and I'm running around this place, right? People can still get tickets. You can still get a room. It might be a little higher rate, but you can still get information on our website about that. And then we have a helpline. If you still need questions, we have a helpline there. And believe it or not, during this uh, time and I'm running around, guess who answers the helpline? Me. Kevin, apparently I have a delegation problem in my personality. I don't know. I have a great team working (laughs) down here. It's nothing on them. Yeah, people can still come out. We'd love to have you out. It's an awesome facility. The competition's been great. We had some upsets. I mean, who thought Nick Adine would lose two matches yet, two draws yesterday? Uh, John, before we let you go, you know, I've, I've been around a bunch of Briars and Scotties and stuff, and you always hear when, when the events are on, you'll be sitting around the Briar patch, and people say, we should try and get a, a big event in our town. We should try and get a big event in our town. If you had to pick one or two things, John, that uh, someone was thinking of getting an event or, or, or going into it to try and get approval and get this thing done, what would you say to them if they wanted to try and get a big event? Well, one, you have to be very passionate about putting on an event. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, especially, like I said, we took a Worlds on here. And, and I'm not doing this to pat us on the back that we did, we're doing what we're doing in five months and hopefully it all works out in the end. Two, you've got to have a great team. We were blessed with Warren being involved with Curling Canada at that time. Without Warren, it would not have happened. Without Rod Paulson to steer us in the right directions from in-house strategies, it wouldn't have happened. You have to have the right people in place in the right positions. You have to have a great local organizing committee team. You don't have to have the experience of putting on the event, but you have that passion. You're going to make your way through as long as then you have good guidance from who you're working with from the, in this case, the, the at that time, Rick Patsky with USA Curling, Kate Kateness at World Curling Federation. It's funny, I had a great relationship with Greg Stremlaw when he was at the head of Curling Canada when we did the first couple of Curling Canada events. And Stremmy and I just, we got some events done down here and it was great. So if you have good relationships and good networking with people around you and everybody's working on the same page, it's always something special when it all comes together. But it starts with passion and it starts with a strong local organizing committee team that is banded together. Uh, Before you go, you had mentioned, and our listeners are going to want to know this, you had mentioned about listening devices in the crowd. Yeah. How does that work quickly? So what we do is we bring in a transmitter that plugs into their production trucks, and then each fan would get a mini receiver that they attach to their belt loop or something or whatever, and then an ear device that plugs into it, and and you get to listen to the live broadcast. So you have the, the beauty of the in arena experience, and then you have still your broadcast. You know how much the folks up there like Vic and Russ and Cheryl when she's on board. You get to listen to the broadcast, so you have the best of both worlds. Unfortunately, 
with the supply chain issues, it just couldn't come together for this particular event. But it's something we've always liked to uh, produce. I think the first actually the first time I saw it done was at the Vancouver Games that I know you know very well, Kevin, in uh, in 2010. You bet. You bet. Hey, Jimmy. Yes, sir. Hey, Jimmy, I got to, I'm going to tell a quick story here. Sorry, guys, to hold this up, but it's just too good not to tell. So we were playing an event a few years ago, John, in uh, at a casino in Ontario called Casino Ram. It had a skins game, and they had the earpieces. They could hear us, but I did not know that, and we're curling uh, one of the games, and we were in big trouble one end. So I was in the hack, and I forget if it was Carter Rycroft or who. Uh, said to me, well, what are we doing, Kevin? And I said, well, Carter, to be honest, we're screwed. And, <laughs> and the whole place erupted laughing. I had no idea they could all hear me. I said it really, really quiet. And then I just spoke to the crowd because they were really close to us. And there was about five, maybe 5,000 people there. And I said, can you guys all hear me? That was really funny. It was the first time I experienced it, John. Uh, and, and it is absolutely wonderful to be able to hear that well into the crowd. And Kevin, if you, if you give me just 30 seconds, I can tell you a similar story at the 2018 World Men's Warren, you might remember this. Fifth end break for their their game uh, comes up, and uh, one or two of them head to the bathroom to let. I think we can say on a podcast, take a leak. They were still talking and whatnot while they were in the bathroom. Well, the, the <laughs> folks at, uh, the folks in the broadcast booth had forgotten. It happened to me on the, They forgot to shut off the mics in the break, and so you could hear them in the bathrooms. So somebody texted. I, I think it was Brad and Mark Nichols texted them. We can hear you in the bathroom. <laughs> that's like that's like a scene with Leslie Nielsen on a police story or whatever it is, man. Congratulations on everything you've done for curling in Vegas, and uh, we look forward to talking to you down the road. Way to go, John. We'll talk to you later. Pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you in the arena later on. Cheers, John. Thank you very much, John. Thanks, John. You're a pretty low-key guy. <laughs> this guy, what a firecracker, man. Well, John's got lots of energy. You never accuse John of not being able to explain himself. <laughs> Great guy, Kevin, to have uh, in the curling world. You know, he really is, and and that group, and, and just what could happen out of this uh, this whole Curling Vegas idea. Man, oh, man, I'm really excited about it. And, but you're right. John's got me sweating here. It's like it's just, just like we ran a marathon <laughs> that last 20 minutes. Warren, what is the setup there, Warren, uh, about this whole Orleans thing? Walk me through that. What, what's, what is there on site? Well, the Orleans complex is not on the Strip. If you're going into Las Vegas down Las Vegas Boulevard, you come to Tropicana right by the MGM Grand. You turn left and go probably, I don't know, maybe two miles, and you come to the Orleans. It's about 2,000 hotel rooms. Uh, within the casino area, there's probably six, seven restaurants anyway. There's about uh, six, seven, eight movie theaters up in the top end, along with uh, a bowling alley that I think was reduced slightly, but I think it's still 80, 80 lanes. And then at the back of the building is the arena, and uh, it's an arena that probably has a capacity of about 7,000 seats. Beautiful building, the arena, and uh, that's the Orleans Complex. So it's uh, very self-contained, all under one roof pretty much. Yeah, you, Kev, you said it might be the best setup you've ever seen. Oh, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I actually walked to the Strip. Uh, I had a game off, and it's about a 30-minute walk. It's 2.8 kilometers mm -hmm. uh, to get to the Strip. And then, yeah, it's just, it's awesome. Nice, you know, all, the weather's always beautiful. So it's just a great walk down there, walk around the Strip, come back to the Orleans. Orleans is huge. So it's just a very cool, uh, cool experience. Uh, very good. Okay, time for story time. Uh, I love story time. Warren, you're on today. Story time's brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners. And they are a proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Warren, you're going to tell us about the history of the men's worlds, among other things. Explain why since 2005, Canada hosts the men's worlds one year and the women get it the following year. I think the stat you gave me, there's 67 other members of world curling. How do we get this thing every year, Warren? Well, let's go back to probably day one. I think this is a good time to talk about this because the, the world men's is the oldest uh, world championship in existence, and it goes back to 1959, 63 years this year since it started. And the original winner in 1959, Ernie Richardson, still with us, he's 90 years old, and he won that first world championship playing only against Scotland in a five-game series that he won five to nothing in 1959. When this came into existence back in that period of time, Scotch Whiskey Corporation became the sponsor of it. And they were the sponsor of the World Men's Championship until 1967. 
Originally only two countries, in 1961, the USA became part of it. In 62, Sweden joined the fold. In 1964, Norway and Switzerland became part of it. And in 1966, in came France in Germany. 1967 was the end of Scotch Whiskey Association as a sponsor. And interesting enough, a Scottish team skipped by Chuck Hay won the event for the first time in that year. But in 1968, Air Canada came on board. In my opinion, probably the, the greatest sponsor that it was ever in place for world curling because of all the things that they did. It became known as the Air Canada Silver Broom. And there really was a trophy that was a silver broom if anybody's ever seen it. Interesting thing happened in 1984. Air Canada's sponsorship was ended, and it was more or less terminated because uh, a group of curling entrepreneurs led by Doug Maxwell uh, convinced the World Curling Federation that they could be better as a sponsor for the World Men's Championship, and as a result, Air Canada was, in fact, terminated. Hexagon became the sponsor in 1986. They had a five-year contract, but they only ran the event for three years and departed in 1980 because of the financial difficulties that they were in as a result of not being able to get any sponsors. It left the men's championship a little bit in limbo going into 1989, but the World Women's that started in 1979 was also struggling. So a decision was made in 1989 to combine the two events into one competition that happened in Milwaukee that year. The World Championship men's and women's became part of the season of champions with uh, the WCF and the St. Clair Group involved, and Ford was brought in as a title sponsor of the combined events. Ford stayed there in that position, and things went well up until 2003, when they called a meeting and said, we got an issue here. It's Ford of Canada that's paying the bill for this whole thing, and we're not getting money from any other Ford companies in the world. We only have the event in Canada one year, probably in three or four. After 2004, we're done. At that point in time, the WCF was being pressured by Asia to have direct entries into the, the world events, which they were growing in size. And with the 10-team competition, that really wasn't possible. So they increased the field to 12, and the event was divided. And to keep Ford happy, it was agreed with the WCF that annually Canada would host either the men's or the women's championship, and it would be the Ford Worlds. It did create some difficulties for the WCF when they went outside the country to get sponsorship, which still more or less exists today. But that's why and how that whole thing happened. That continued to work pretty well until 2017 when Ford very quickly announced that they would no longer be continuing as the sponsor. So we continue today with the event still divided into two separate entities, men and women, Canada hosting one of them annually. I'm not sure if it still makes sense from everybody's point of view, particularly Canada. I'm not sure where we sit today if this is still really financially feasible for them under this current arrangement. And also, very difficult for the WCF to get a title sponsor on either one of these events when the events are outside of Canada when it changes every year. There we go. Another good story, Warren. And of course, our guest talks about how they're getting all these events in Vegas. Thanks very much to Meridian Manufacturing. Okay, boys, another one in the books. Uh, Kev, you've probably, probably got nothing but time on your hands right down there. You've got probably two, three days off between games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we do two or three games every day, so it's it's a busy time, but it's a great time. Yeah, I'm loving this. i got to be honest with all the curling that's gone on, and I'm watching the worlds and everything. It's just it's a fantastic time for curling. Uh, it, it couldn't be better, Warren, with, with all the curling that's happening these days. It's going to end shortly, I guess, after the worlds, but... Well, no, not yet, Jim. we got two Grand Slam events. So starting Chutsi the 12th is going to be the next Grand Slam event. So uh, we're not done yet. You took the words right out of my mouth. So Okay, so uh, there we go. Another show in the books. Thanks a lot to Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies. He does all our stuff on uh, Facebook and our Facebook page and Facebook group. Uh, check it out. There's, there's lots that goes on there. If you want to send us an email, insidecurling at gmail.com. And if we read your email, you're going to get a copy of Warren's books. Sticks and stones. There we go, boys. Uh, lots going on. And uh, next week, we'll know them. Who won the men's worlds? Cool. See you, Kevin. See you, Warren. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.